Knowing that I wasn't under the gun to either find a new job or get my contract renewed every year was probably the biggest, most positive change that I didn't even know I needed. And I didn't realize how exhausting it was until it wasn't there anymore. And I was just like, I feel so much better. Welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast, focused on helping you reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have decided to step off the beaten path to reinvent their careers. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is gonna explain how he went from being a visiting assistant professor at a university to a data scientist in the private sector. We'll discuss what it takes to succeed in the world of academia and how to leverage your existing knowledge in a totally new environment. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll share my thoughts in response to a listener question about the great resignation. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Gratchik, who's a trained data scientist with a PhD in economics. He's worked in academic and instructional positions for University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Wake Forest University, and the Duke University Talent Identification Program. Now he's practice director for artificial intelligence and machine learning at K-Force, where he uses his mathematical, statistical, and game theoretic knowledge to architect and implement data-driven improvements to business practices. Now, just to set the scene here, a couple months ago, I stumbled upon an article in Nature about the recent wave of mid-career researchers at universities leaving academia. So I put a call out on my Twitter and LinkedIn feeds to try and find a university faculty member who has decided to depart an academic post to head into an industry or private sector role. And that's when I heard about Andrew. We haven't really featured an academic on the show before, but as someone myself whose father was a professor and whose wife also works in academics, I thought it was about time we got someone from the world of academia to give us a glimpse into their lives. You can get all the show notes from today's conversation at careerrelaunch.net slash 87. Andrew spoke with me from Toronto, Canada. Okay, Andrew, welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast. It is great to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Joseph. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Let's start by talking about what's been keeping you busy in your life and career. I understand you just started a new role just earlier this month. Is that right? That's correct. So I just started as a uh, practice director for artificial intelligence and machine learning at K-Force. So that's been uh, keeping me busy. The transition has been keeping me busy, but it's a lot going on. What exactly are you responsible for there at K-Force and what does K-Force focus on? K-Force is generically a staffing company. They're the largest staffing company for infrastructure technology and other intelligence-driven services in the United States. They help companies solve problems for projects with people. And what I'm responsible for is kind of kickstarting a practice in that vein for data science. So instead of having, say, IT people to institute some security protocol or cybersecurity people instituting some protocol and working with a company's full-time staff and permanent staff to do that on a project, I would help to architect that and choose other consultants to help implement that as well as help implement myself. You are based in Toronto. Can you just tell me a little bit about your personal setup? What's been keeping you busy right now in your personal life? I guess what's been keeping me busy lately is cats. We just got a new cat, so <laughs> okay. I'm, 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 I'm 
I'm a very cat oriented person. How many but, cats uh, do you have? Uh, oh, right now we have three. Oh, wow. So okay. We just adopted one uh, from a rescue here and cooking and running. My wife and I like to run 10Ks and half marathons. So I like to cook, I like to eat. I, I mostly like to run so I can eat. That's really the only reason <laughs> right. I do it. If I, if I could eat around, afterward, right. it would be. Yeah, I don't, I don't eat to run. I, I run so I can eat and not become a giant person. We have some things in common. For I love cats, Andrew. We don't own one. Oh, great. I would love to own one, but I don't know if I could keep up with it and a little worried about the furniture. But I also love running and I also love eating. And I, like you, well, that's great. probably run to eat, not the other way around. So but before we go back in time and talk about your former professional life, you are in Canada, but you are American. And so how did you end up in Toronto? I ended up in Toronto because my wife was working at the University of Toronto. So my wife is also in academia and has a PhD. Uh, she came up in 2019, right after she got her PhD into a postdoctoral fellowship. And I came up to visit her over spring break in 2020. And that is when the pandemic broke out. And so I was at the time a, a visiting assistant professor at Wake Forest University. And they closed everything down and all the travel shut down. And I was just in Toronto. And for several years, I didn't really go back to the States because it wasn't really feasible to. And so I just kind of started being here. And it was actually in Toronto that I became, began my transition. And so I, I like to joke that I came up for, for spring break and never left. And uh, now we're permanent <laughs> residents. And the tax is a little complicated. Yes, it is. <laughs> but it my is. residence is actually uh, in North Carolina for those purposes. I'm, I'm there sometimes, but still in Canada frequently. You mentioned academia there, and I would love to just go back in time. You haven't always been working in data science at K-Force. You haven't always been in the private sector. Can we go back in time and talk about your time in the academic world? And then we can move forward from there. And why don't we start with, well, I want to go all the way back here. What were you focused on as a PhD candidate at the University of North Carolina? And how did you end up going down the PhD route? Back in the primordial days of 2010 and 11, I was a I was finishing my undergraduate degree at University of South Carolina. And how I got into my head to do a PhD is actually to this day, kind of a mystery. It doesn't, you know, if I think about it, it doesn't really make sense why I did it because I got my bachelor's in physics and math. And I realized towards the end doing lab work, I kind of hated physics lab work. And I was like, that's a problem because, you know, I was like, okay, I could go into the high energy pure math theoretical stuff. I could go and work, you know, maybe for some oil company doing, you know, some basic physics, you know, fluid dynamics stuff. But I didn't really like any of those options. And then for some reason in my, the end of my undergraduate career, I took a philosophy course, which ended up teaching a bit about economics. It's one of those weird interdisciplinary electives that colleges do sometimes. I can't even remember what the name of it was. And I was like, this, this is very interesting. And I think there's something to this. And so somehow I got into my mind to get a PhD in economics, which I'd literally never taken a course in. Uh, but I knew math, and that helped a lot. So I, I applied to a few different schools for their PhD programs. But I applied kind of late because I was late to the game and figuring out that's what I wanted to do. And then I got rejected. <laughs> okay. and, but then I went to North Carolina and said, what can I do to make myself a more attractive candidate and talk to a few of the professors? And then they decided to let me in for the fall semester. They just let you in just like that, just from you just having a chat with them. Yeah, I think they, maybe they just had 
a slot open up and uh, they let me in. Right place, right time. Okay. And so then I went in there and it turns out that uh, it was not so bad because most of graduate economics is just math and I could do math. So that's how I got into the PhD. And it seemed like it might give me an understanding for how society worked. You know, as you think of it, you know, in some progression of I wanted to learn how the physical reality worked and I wanted to understand how social reality worked. And I'm not going to say that I did that in a totality. I understand everything now. I'm not going to say that I can do that, but it did provide me some insights into why society is the way it is in certain ways that for better or for worse, I now have. And so I'm very grateful to that. So as I was a PhD candidate, I was focusing on game theory and labor economics and financial asset bubbles, which seems like a weird combination. But really what my focus was on was understanding and providing some coherent theory on how housing bubbles were the result of income and wealth inequality. And at least postulating that was a plausible thing and creating a model to show how that could be the case and how it explains phenomena that we see. So basically how inequality was not just an effect of economic policy, but a cause of economic reality. I see. So kind of generating distortion in asset markets, as you had mentioned before. Exactly. I was really big into understanding how inequality happened, why, and in my mind, more importantly, what that does to society and economic just markets in general, you could say that. You're actually one of the first academics that we've had, just to kind of use the term broadly, that we've had on the show. And I'm just going to take a big picture view of this. So this is what your dissertation was focused on. For those people who are listening to this and they're just not familiar with what's involved with doing a PhD, like what exactly is a dissertation? And could you just explain at a very high level what that involves? A dissertation is where you put your ideas to realize that they're wrong. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so a dissertation is a process by which you compile research. And I've never met a person, and I don't think I ever will, who's got a PhD who is absolutely sure of themselves. And it's not because, you know, there's this you know, well-known imposter syndrome. There, that is a real problem among academics. But part of it's about understanding and embracing that humility of realizing so many people have thought about so many things. Every minute detail of every idea you have has been thought about, studied, and analyzed <laughs> And you have to defend every single statement you make about everything. Parts of what leads to academics speaking so strangely and insisting <laughs> on such precision in their language, because if they say something inaccurate, somebody's going to jump out and say, aha, you, you misattributed this thing. But um, yeah, I think we spoke before, Andrew, my, my wife also did a PhD and she works in academics right now. And I have had the privilege of joining her at some of her conferences, mostly just because I wanted to kind of travel alongside because she gets to go to cool places. The discussions around the lunch table are very detailed and, and very yeah, in very the minutia and in the weeds to the point where I just really lose track of the conversation sometimes. And so, so that's interesting that you described that. How did you enjoy doing a dissertation? Like, what was that experience like for you? Focusing on on one very specific topic here in inequality, generating distortion in asset markets. What was that experience like for you on a day to day level? I will not sugarcoat it. It was harrowing. It was psychologically quite taxing, and I would never do it again. Okay. I'm being completely serious there. It was a very stressful time. Part of it is just the volume of work. I mean, most PhD dissertations are between three and five academic papers, which really depends on the discipline you're in, but usually is 
an academic paper is, you know, you said a research paper where you have to basically have a citation for everything or a mathematical equation justifying everything uh-huh. and a graph justifying your interpretation of the mathematical equation. How many pages are we talking about here per per paper? Mine was only, I think, on the order of 250, wow. maybe. Still and mine was pretty condensed <laughs> because I didn't really have any graphs. I Mine was all pure math and theory and proofs. So it was on the shorter side, uh, but there are some who swell much beyond that. And some of it's because they have like a bunch of figures and graphs and things that swell their space and everything. So it's really all about people telling you your ideas are wrong for six years until eventually you find something they can't find a fault with and uh, they can't definitively prove is wrong. And I made it harder on myself by kind of tackling this weird nebulous problem that people weren't really familiar with of uh, income inequality as a cause of things and asset bubbles, both of which are pretty on their own, pretty niche topics in the yeah. economic, economic world, which they absolutely shouldn't be. I think it's a problem that they are niche topics, but they are. And I'm put them together, which is even more niche, uh, which made people even more skeptical and drew even more scrutiny. I certainly don't regret my choice of topics. I don't regret getting a PhD, but it was a harrowing process. And anybody getting a PhD, it's really about deconstructing your worldview and building it back up in a way that is completely in line with available data. Let's <laughs> say that much. You're doing this dissertation, you're doing your PhD, you finish your PhD, and then how did you then think about your career moving forward? I understand you then ended up moving into the realm of working with undergraduates as a visiting professor, is that correct? The career trajectory that's usually given to Every academic person I've talked to, at least, I'm sure there are some places they're different, but most programs from what I can gather in most disciplines kind of point students at more academic jobs. And I think the reason for that is a pretty simple selection bias, right? I mean, the people who are instructing these people are professors who got academic jobs. That's right. And I will say it's almost impossible to cross the threshold from non-academic to academic jobs. It is very difficult unless you like, you know, have some connection to you know, there, there's yeah. very, very rare exceptions to that. But people who are in academia and have tenured jobs or, you know, who are advising students are almost certainly people who have done nothing but academia ever. And so it's the world they know. It's the world they f- advise in because it's the world they lived in. And it's also a factor of most of the professors that I talked to and had were, let's say, it had been a minimum of 15, 20 years since they had, you know, gotten their PhDs. And the job market that they went into was very different from the job market that current graduates were entering into, which may have also shaped their understanding and their advice. But yeah, so the path laid out for me was, oh, go get an academic job, go uh, get a professor job, go join the Federal Reserve Bank, go do something academia-ish. And it quickly became apparent that that was not going to happen for a lot of people uh, who I was graduating with, just because of the degree of competition and economics is not the most stingy with jobs. There are actually plenty of economics jobs. There were just still weren't enough though, to say that much for, uh, and I, I know a lot of people who've had to go in the private sector because of that, or not had to, but they decided to. You mentioned becoming a tenured professor. Can you just explain what is a tenured professor and like, what are the different versions of professor that are out there. I think there's, my father was a professor actually, and he was an assistant professor for a while, and then he was a tenured professor. But can you just explain the difference between like visiting professor, adjunct faculty, lecturer, professor, tenured professor? 
I'll start at the sort of the bottom of the totem pole, as it were, uh, with adjuncts. And adjuncts, they shouldn't exist. Not that the people shouldn't exist, but the position shouldn't exist because the university should pay people to be actual professors. It's kind of the the minimum wage of academia. So you have these people who know their subjects very well, have done research, gotten their PhDs, but universities realize they can pay them on a per class basis rather than hire them as a full-time faculty member. And so often you'll have people teaching on the order of, or actually sometimes far beyond what a tenured professor would be making, uh, would be teaching rather, and being paid very little. And this is especially a problem among humanities where there are have been fewer jobs opening up uh, in the recent years for many reasons. So to go up the, the totem pole a little bit, a lecturer is somebody who is just there to teach classes, but they are contracted on a yearly basis and they have uh, some benefits, but you know, their job is only to teach classes. It's a very important job to teach classes, but they're usually teaching undergraduates, usually have PhDs in the field. Uh, in fact, almost always, I've never met a lecturer who didn't, uh, but their job is to teach classes. Now, then you get into like professor level. Now, visiting assistant professors are weird. That is what you were at Wake Forest, right? Yes. Okay. So they are professors who are expected to do things. I mean, technically, you're only paid to teach. But the idea is that this is a temporary position where you are going to be doing some teaching, mentorship, research. But this is not a position that they want to be permanent. And they are explicit about that from the get-go. You're there. You get benefits. But you're not permanent. The idea is that you're there to work with students and faculty and produce research and teach classes just like a normal faculty member would, but you're not a permanent faculty member. Okay. There's no pretense of you becoming permanent. Okay. And so then you get into the actual like quote unquote permanent faculty members, the ones that can become tenured. So tenure is essentially a process by which you have a permanent job at the university and they can't get rid of you except for very bad things to be frank. The reason behind it is historically it's been to preserve academic integrity and to make sure that professors aren't fearing for their jobs anytime they publish a controversial paper or anytime a student says, oh, this professor isn't a good teacher uh, because he gave me a bad grade, that kind of thing. So the tenure process is usually a few years. And so that's where we get into the assistant professors, like non-visiting assistant professors are people who could get tenure if they do well. And so what the process is will depend on the school and the department, really. So some departments don't care about student reviews. You could be an awful teacher, and as long as you publish well, you'll get a tenure. In fact, that's how a lot of departments are. I shouldn't say some departments. That's how sadly many departments are. And most of the time it's focused on what you publish and where. So what kind of topics are you publishing in? How good are the journals? What's the citation rate? Basically, are you spreading the name of yourself and the university by extension out into the world with your research showing that we're doing really impressive things? Okay, but you're saying that most people who are permanent assistant professors, they are on the way eventually, assuming nothing goes horrendously wrong to becoming a tenured professor, more often than not. More often than not, they're going to get it. I mean, the thing is, universities are pretty careful, or departments, really, because it's departments who are doing this job search. It's not like you have an HR person who hires people. It's usually the professors in the department have to go and search for people because they are the only people who are qualified to know what they need. Mm-hmm. And what's good yeah. and what a good professor is because you got an HR person, it would be a nightmare because they wouldn't know the difference between a good, say, PhD physicist and a bad PhD physicist. Right. Or like the different publications or. Yeah, exactly. Or if it's what the department needs right now, because you could be a perfectly good physicist, economist, whatever. And they just don't need that person right now. Like, oh, we really need somebody to teach this kind of course or we really need we really want someone to do this kind of research. And this person does a different kind of research. And that was a problem I ran into a lot. So I, I'm very familiar with that. The other reason is so you're very selective 
because they don't want to do this again. So if you're the kind of person who gets selected, they probably are pretty confident you're going to do enough work to get tenure. And you've already shown a track record. And so it's really just if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to get tenure. The other reason is even if you falter and misstep a little bit, you know, a little bit, the department decides if you get tenure. And the professors don't really want to do another job search right. because it's a lot of time. And they have their own publications they have to do. They've got their own classes they got to teach. And it's a huge amount of work on top of that. I've seen the job market from both sides. And it's a lot of work for everybody. And so as long as you're doing the kind of stuff they expect you to do, they're going to keep you around because that's another 100, 200, 300 hours they don't have to spend looking for another candidate and sifting through resumes and everything. But anyway, if once you pass that threshold, you become a associate professor. And so you go from assistant. And then if you do other specific things, which again is dependent on the university department, et cetera, usually it's have students graduate, publish more papers, do service for the department, like you know, be a chair of some committee, teach classes, do stuff, you become a full professor. I guess we should also mention that this system you're describing is kind of more of a North American system. It does not necessarily exist everywhere in the world. I guess certain countries follow this convention, but other countries, for example, where I am in the UK, there's no such thing as tenure and it's like a totally different system. But this is the system that you were in and that you were dealing with there in the United States. Yes. So this is specific to the United States and Canada. Just to kind of shift gears here then, so thank you for giving us a lay of the land of how this trajectory could work out for somebody who's in academia. What happened with your experience as a visiting professor and what was running through your head as you were thinking about your own career path? Were you thinking that you wanted to go down the tenure track? Were you game for that? Or what was running through your head as you were teaching your undergraduate economics course at Wake Forest? I was torn initially because I really enjoyed the work I did. I enjoyed coming up with research. I enjoyed teaching my students. I enjoyed coming up with courses. I gotten to teach a lot of different courses at Wake Forest University. I got to come up with my own course on inequality and history. It was a great time and it was really great working with the students. But the caveat is I was a visiting assistant professor. So my, I had the sort of Damocles hanging over me every year. Technically, I worked there for four years, but it was four one-year contracts. And so every year I was going to the job market, which, as I mentioned, is a stressful experience existentially, but also it's a lot of work because you got to apply to a bunch of places, you got to make all these packets. And it's also worth mentioning that academic job applications are a bit of a different beast themselves. Usually I have to come up with research plans specific to the needs of the university you're working on. So it's a lot of writing just to make an application. You make dozens of these things. Right. You got to include like research samples and, and the conferences you've attended, the grants, right? All that kind of. Yeah. Stuff. And so you got to include all this material and often make new material and for every single thing you do, because every university wants to see something a little bit different. Every department wants to see something a little bit different. And so it's a lot of work there. And you have to make sure you have a new flashy paper ready to go on the job market with that you can say is the paper I'm going to use to showcase myself. So you have to make sure that you get that ready. You're teaching in the fall. You're doing this in the fall, which means you're not doing any research because it's just not feasible. It's, it's really not possible. And I like to say, I usually tell people that uh, being a professor is three jobs. It's teaching, research, and grant writing. For me, it was just research and teaching. So I only had two full-time jobs and I was already feeling the push. I can't, I don't know how people do have to also write grants. It's almost like a vicious cycle, I guess, because you're a visiting professor, you have to do these, I guess, annual job 
hunts. And then that detracts from your ability to do the research that would then otherwise help support your journey to becoming a tenured professor. So it's like this vicious cycle that you're in. And so ultimately what I realized was that it was treading water and that treading was getting harder and harder. I was getting hot, you know, bigger and bigger weights tied to my legs. So the more years I was in it, the more exhausted I got, the worse it looked for me to be a visitor for that long. And that vicious cycle was starting to create a whirlpool around me. And I just realized that it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't worth it. Let's talk about the transition then. So how did you get into the private sector? How did you make that pivot? Because I know this is a question that does come up and has been coming up more recently. I've seen news articles about more academics wanting to leave academia, moving into the private sector. How did you go about doing it? So the first times I tried were very unsuccessful. So my first attempts to pivot in the private sector were actually back in 2019. And what I realized was I didn't know how to sell myself and I didn't have any credentials that anyone in outside of academia understood anything about. And that was itself very disheartening. And so I really didn't get any traction in any meaningful way in the private sector. But then when I got more serious about it in 2020, which came after that you know, spring break that I mentioned that never really ended, I knew some stuff and I knew how to do some things, but I didn't know how to communicate in a way that the people on the other side hiring would understand. And so luckily I, I found some resources and I learned how to do coding in Python rather than some of the other software packages I was using. How'd you learn how to do that? I started just by downloading it and doing stuff and Googling things and uh, also working with like some other open source softwares and just making some stuff. And I did have some help from my wife who was very supportive and she had been doing Python for a while because some of her departments had pushed Python because they didn't wanna pay for MATLAB anymore. And I found this program called the Data Incubator. I definitely got into the data science Python world more expediently than I probably would have otherwise. What I really learned from them was how to talk about things in a way that made sense to non-academics and how to comport myself for interviews and job market practices in the private sector, which is substantially different from the public sector in academia. And then where did you ultimately land as your first private sector job? I ended up getting a job at NN Data which is a contract company that mostly works with the Department of Defense and other public sector entities solving data problems. And it was really great that I got to go there because they threw me at a lot of different projects really fast. So in like a year and a half that I was there, I got to work on, I don't even know, probably a half dozen different projects on very different topics. So doing stuff from you know, natural language processing to big data to small data to anomaly detection to everything in between. And I got to do a lot of fun stuff. And that really helped me not only broaden my horizons in terms of data science, but talk about things and know what technologies are out there. It gave me a crash course and basically all of data science plus data engineering plus some other things, a really great opportunity. And when you were there, can you just describe the major differences that you found working in the private sector for a company versus working for a university? You know, I was technically in my contract you know, with the universities protected against all kinds of things, but I was still a one-year contract. And so I weirdly felt more protected in this at-will employment contract because it didn't have a definite end date. Knowing that I wasn't under the gun to either find a new job or get my contract renewed every year was probably the biggest, most positive change that I didn't even know I needed. And I didn't realize how exhausting it was until it wasn't there anymore. And I was just like, I feel 
so much better. I can enjoy things. And the other thing was, it was actually weirdly a lot more collaborative. Now, maybe it's because economics is kind of a field in academia where people tend to work in either singular or small groups. And even the ones who are very collaborative don't work that closely with each other. There's often usually a bunch of stuff they're doing on their own. But in this case, it was really interesting to have a team to collaborate with and have ideas with, talk about things, help each other. You know, if I got stuck on a problem, I could ask somebody and I could help people if they got stuck on problems. And it was quite nice to have that atmosphere. It sounds like things are going quite well for you at NN Data. How did you then end up shifting from there to K-Force? I was kind of sad to leave. So the reason I left, though, was that I got essentially a, a better offer. I had met some people who put me in touch with other people and in conversations about data science and solutions in general, I ended up also meeting one of the practice leaders at K-Force who decided for some reason that he wanted to have me on his team. And you know, he was a guy who was more of a data engineer and he wanted to bring data science to K-Force. And for some reason, he figured that I was the person he wanted to do this. I don't know how. The conversation I had with this guy started back in like October of 2021, where we were just talking about data science in general and what the future of it was as we saw it. And it wasn't until June of this year, so you know, eight months later, that they ended up contacting me and said, hey, are you still interested in doing this? And from there, it went really fast and we had interviews and I ended up getting chosen for this position. And I think what it was about was just that the breadth of things I could talk about in very academia detail was what convinced this guy to push for me and to push to start this thing now. I see. Okay. So you weren't actively looking for a role. This was an example that we talk about on the show quite a bit of just staying in touch with people, keeping the communication lines open, and sometimes over the long run, opportunities pop up. So the last thing, before we talk about some of the lessons that you've learned along the way of your career change journey, moving from academia into the private sector, could I just also ask you, what, if anything, do you miss about the world of academia? It's hard to say now because I'm aware on both experiential level, a statistical level, and also, I guess, to add into that, a sort of game theoretical level, understanding why the academic job markets are so problematic and extricating the job from the job market is difficult in my mind. But I suppose if I do miss anything, it's probably working with the students and you know helping them to develop their own understanding of, say, economics, because that's what I did. I thought I would miss the research, but really... You know, as a data scientist, I kind of get to still do it just without all the, you know, having to pay thousands of dollars to a paper to publish your work. I can just put stuff on uh, papers with code or on archive and do stuff if I want to share things. But it's really, you know, it's the same spirit of pushing the boundaries, testing the possible and experimenting. Academics would probably say it lacks rigor and it probably does, but it's also way more results oriented and doesn't take nearly as long to implement things. So you, know, you take the good with the bad, but I'd say it's the same spirit. So I don't have to miss the research. If there is an academic out there who's listening to this, do you have any thoughts on how they can think about whether or not they should consider moving into the private sector or an industry role or the corporate world? Any, any thoughts on who it is for and who it's not for coming out of academics? 
I would say that it's always worth considering the private sector. You should never not consider it. But you know, if you've considered and you're not sure what to do in the future, what I think helped me re- was that I realized that the process of research, the process of the job market didn't make the potential of a tenure track job worth it. And I, so I think what is important to think about from a, an academic's perspective, if you value more the results of research and the implementation of your results than the research itself in an ivory tower, it's definitely worth getting into the private sector because you can find places to do the same things just as much in the private sector as you did in public sector or in academia. And you won't have what I'd say the stifling rigmarole of the journal system holding you back. The last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up with maybe having a quick chat about the data incubator, because I know we kind of skimmed over that and I do want to come back to that, but I just wanted to hear a little bit about the lessons that you've learned along the way of your journey. And the first question is just, it sounds like you're quite happy in the transition that you've made. If you had to give advice to your younger self as it relates to changing career paths, what might that be? You know more than you give yourself credit for. I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, conversation how good the dissertation is at breaking you down and building you back up and making you be precise about everything. But what you have to remember is that while you've gone through that and you're still probably in the aftershocks of it and you know those aftershocks may last your whole life of you thinking that you don't know definitively things, you know more than you yourself credit for and you need to be able to have the confidence and self-awareness to build yourself as such. Put it on the hypothetical billboards of what you know and never be afraid to assert yourself in that way. When you look back on your career transition, what's something that you wished you had known that you now know? There's no real reason to be nostalgic about academia. It can be scary and unfamiliar leaving, but it really doesn't stay that way for very long. There's so many people who need so many things that you will find something, especially if you have you know, a, a PhD, you know something very well. Somebody needs that to do something else. And having been through this career change where you have now successfully crossed the chasm from academia into the private sector, what's one thing you've learned about yourself along the way? I am very good at adapting. I'm very good at being thrown into a situation where I don't know I'm supposed to lead the meeting, but I get put to lead the meeting. So I have to go based on what I know about the client to have an intelligent conversation about the thing we're supposed to be doing. I'm good at being the guy who they need something to show somebody. So they say, please come up with something in the next day. And we don't know what they want, but do something that's impressive. And I'll come up with something. And so I'm very good at thinking of my feet and at adapting to situations as they come. But I know some people don't like that. But I realized more than academia had been giving me the chance to show that I was able to do that. And that's actually kind of what I like. You know, it keeps things fresh. I don't mind having projects that are ambiguous where suddenly the client reveals what they really want. And we have to change our perspectives and reorient ourselves quickly. Well, I want to wrap up with something I know has been important to your own career trajectory. I know you mentioned that the the data incubator was one of the reasons why you were able to make this 
Leap. Can you just tell me a little bit more about the data incubator and how it helps people move out of academia and into the private sector? Data incubator is a program that's designed to give people certifications in data science work or also data engineering. Now, when I did it, it was just data science. Now they also do data engineering. But the point is, they are acutely aware of the problems I was talking about, where people know stuff. They know how to do technical things. They're very talented people, but they don't know how to get their foot in the door in the corporate world or in the private sector for whatever reason. And so what the data incubator is about is two things, really. I would say it's two things. It's about teaching skills. So they take people who are otherwise good at math, stats, whatever, but don't necessarily know how to program or code because you know they may have been taught in programs that don't do those things as much as they maybe should in the modern era, but they teach them how to code in Python, how to use these packages, how to do data science, how to train models, how to use their expertise in other areas and mathematics and translate that into the programmable results from a computer in computation. But the other thing they do that I think is very important is they explicitly teach you how to do a job search, which is something I never really got taught even in academia. They just kind of said, oh, go and apply for jobs. And no one ever really told me like what you should be doing and how you actually get a job. And these people do that. They sit down with you and say, here's how you write a good resume. They have people help you structure your resume to emphasize your best traits. They help you structure cover letters. Like here's how you should write a cover letter for this kind of job. Here's how you should approach an interview. So it was really about translating the thoughts you have from academia, putting it into a funnel and out into a way that people outside of academia can understand so they can know how valuable you are. Very interesting. And it sounds like they played a huge role in your own career and it's playing a huge role in other people's careers. So thanks for walking us through that. And then I'll definitely include a link in the show notes so people can learn more about the data incubator. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for taking the time to tell us more about the world of academia that you left behind, how you managed the transition into the private sector, and also the importance of moving on when the time feels right for you. So best of luck with your new role there at K-Force, and I hope everything continues to go well for you as you head down this new career path. Thank you very much, Joseph. And uh, once again, thank you for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Andrew's perspectives on the world of academia, what it takes to make the leap into a private sector role, and how your knowledge is something that stays with you even when you make a major professional transition. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to address a listener question about the recent wave of voluntary job resignations around the world. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to thank Vista Social for supporting this episode of the Career Relaunch Podcast. Vista Social is a versatile, time-saving tool to manage all your social media accounts in one place. You can easily create, schedule, optimize, and publish content directly to multiple social media profiles from one simple dashboard. I actually use it myself to manage all my online profiles. Try Vista Social out for free right now by going to careerrelaunch.net slash Vista. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, since we're talking about leaving one job behind to pursue another, I wanted to address a question from this listener in Philadelphia. Hey, Joseph, this is nurse practitioner Ellen from the Philadelphia area. First of all, thank you for creating a wonderful quality of life podcast, which is aimed at career fulfillment rather than job title or salary or status. I'm an avid listener. I'm wondering, what is your take on the great resignation trend or the big quit phenomenon happening here in the U.S. and elsewhere? 
Thank you. And I look forward to your thoughts. Okay. Thanks for that question, Ellen. And thanks so much for being a loyal listener. So if you're not familiar with this term, the great resignation, which has also been referred to as the great quit, the great awakening, the great reset, or the great reshuffle, it's been all over the news lately. And it's a term that first started getting used widely in early 2021 as a way of describing this trend of employees voluntarily resigning from their jobs after what had been an employer's marketplace in early to mid 2020 during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And just to throw out a few stats here in the places where I know we have a lot of listeners, in April 2021, a record 4 million Americans quit their jobs, according to the U.S. Labor Department's monthly job openings and labor turnover survey. In December 2021, there was the highest number of job vacancies on record in the U.K., according to the U.K.'s Office for National Statistics. And during the back half of 2021, there was a 10% increase in workers starting new jobs in Australia compared to the pre-pandemic average, according to the Australian Treasury's analysis. And you can find similar statistics for other countries, including China, where there's been a movement that got coined in April 2021 called Tangping, which roughly translates to lying flat and slowing down to reject this idea of long work hours and to get out of the rat race that work can sometimes become. So to answer your question, Ellen, this is certainly a real trend. And if you want my opinion on it, and this is more based on my own anecdotal observations and conversations I've had with clients and audience members who attend my workshops, I actually think we're just at the start of this movement of people realizing that they don't want to just settle for working in the exact same ways we did pre-pandemic. And I'm talking about long commutes, being in the office five days a week instead of working from home, and embracing hybrid workplaces that have become much more commonplace after COVID hit. What I'm hearing and seeing more of in my interactions with mid to senior level professionals who work mostly in corporate roles is this call to return to the office either hinted or even mandated in some cases. In the recent corporate talks I've given this year, I've actually noticed that the vast majority have been for events focused on welcoming teams back into the office for the first time since the pandemic started. Actually, in a Prezi poll conducted last month surveying over 1,100 of their enterprise customers, two-thirds of hybrid workers reported feeling like there's a proximity bias that favors colleagues who are together in the office, which kind of makes sense because if you're working from home, you definitely risk being out of sight and out of mind when all your colleagues are back together in the office. I'm also hearing from people saying that their employers are almost overcorrecting and requiring that they be in the office in a way they weren't even doing pre-pandemic to almost offset and make up for all the lost face-to-face interactions we have witnessed since early 2020. But the problem here is that you've got people who have had the luxury of working from home these past couple years who have now seen that doing work remotely is possible and that working from home certainly can't exactly mimic or replace in-person interactions, but it's pretty decent and still lets you get your job done. And on top of that, it gives you way more flexibility, returns a lot of time to you that you might have lost on the commute, and may even allow you to be more productive in ways you can't be when there are constant interruptions in the office. I actually haven't crossed paths with a single person who likes the work commute 
any more now than they did pre-pandemic. And in most cases, they kind of despise it in a way that they didn't before. So what we have here is a bit of a perfect storm of people coming face to face with the fragility of life due to this pandemic that's still with us, being burnt out by work, awakening to the fact we can work more flexibly, but feeling disenchanted by the fact they're being called back to return to the office more days than they personally feel are necessary just for the sake of traditional FaceTime. And all this means that there may be an even larger exodus of employees in 2023 once they come to realize their employers may not be exactly accepting of this new, more flexible way of working they've grown so accustomed to these past couple years. And that is going to be hard to stomach, especially once you've realized through direct experience that there's another way you can work. I actually think that's a good realization to have. The past couple years, if nothing else, have taught us that you really owe it to yourself to find a way of working that enables you to make the most of each day, both personally and professionally. You shouldn't just settle for the status quo. You have to take it upon yourself to find a professional path that aligns with rather than conflicts with who you want to be. And finding an organization that has the same vision for work that you have for yourself. This takes me to a quote from Anita Williams Woolley, who researches organizational behavior and theory at Carnegie Mellon University. It just takes a little creativity and comfort, getting used to a new way of doing things. The silver lining in the pandemic is that it's forced organizations to find ways to do that. And I really hope they never go back because for people's well-being, work-life balance, etc., it just really is better to have this kind of flexibility. So my challenge to you is to just consider if you're facing a bit of a turning point with your own employer where you're getting mandated to do things for the sake of returning to the way things were that just don't sit so well with you anymore. You don't need to pick up and leave right away, but you may just want to put some stakes in the ground for yourself about how you do and don't want to work moving forward in the months and years ahead. If you've also got a question you want me to address on the show, or if you have a story of career change in your own life you want to share, I'd love for you to leave me a voicemail with your thoughts at careerrelaunch.net slash 87, where you can also find a summary of my conversation with Andrew and learn more about the data incubator he mentioned. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 87. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch community. And a special thanks again to Andrew Gratchik for sharing his story with us today from Toronto, Canada. This episode was mixed by Liam McKenzie. Today's music was curated by Jonathan Rinaldi Pohl, and the Career Relaunch theme song was written and performed by Electrocardiogram. I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll talk to you next time.